Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. Rising wages are now replacing corporate greed as the go-to establishment scapegoat for inflation. And even that excuse is starting to falter. A few weeks ago, I talked about how central banks use profits and wages as scapegoats for the inflation they themselves cause. They do that to get people to fight each other instead of blaming them. During the inflation of the past two years, it's been mostly establishment politicians going after profit, so-called greedflation. Now we get the next shoe to drop with the Wall Street Journal today worrying that, quote, Inflation will frustrate the Fed's heroic efforts to stop the inflation it caused. As the article put it, quote, as greedflation starts to fade, wageflation creeps in. It notes that profit margins are returning to normal as unsold goods from the impending recession overwhelm the illusions that have been elevating profits so far. I mentioned these the other day. They're product shortages, accounting quirks, and lack of investment. But now wages are finally creeping up as workers are, quote, slowly recapturing more of the economic pie. In raw numbers, wages are now a higher share of corporate value add than pre-pandemic, with labor costs up 6% in the past year. Now, it sounds like a lot, but it's barely beating out inflation of 5.3%. Profits, meanwhile, are crawling at just 1.6% growth. That's nearly 4% down after inflation. The journal naturally blames labor shortages. I shared a tweet the other day that in America, 105 million Americans are out of the workforce. That's up 15 million since the worst of the 2008 crisis. The journal goes on to portray workers as fighting a pitched battle against corporate profits in a well-meaning Fed who's just trying to keep everybody safe. But the truth is workers are not bonkers to want more. They are simply finally getting the drip-down secondhand inflation. This is the Cantillon effect, where inflation is pure profit to the first recipients, starting with the money printer himself. Then it progressively trickles down in weaker and weaker form until the last recipients who get money long after prices have risen. In other words, they actually make a loss. Think of a counterfeiting operation who makes pure profit when they first pass the $100 bill. Prices haven't risen yet. While some elderly pensioner years later finally gets a cost of living adjustment long after the prices have risen. So she took one for the team in the meantime. So this evolution from greedflation to wageflation is simply the Cantillon process. Trillions starting at the federal government, then the banks, then the corporations, finally to workers. So far, that Cantillon parade has robbed the median American worker of almost 8% of his wages since Biden took office, meaning the wageflation that the journal is currently worried about is barely making a dent. In fact, it's matching the hit from the double dip recession in 1979 to 81, which was the worst in the past 50 years, meaning workers are doing the worst in 50 years once again before this recession even hits in full, but everything is fine. So what's next? Any prospect of workers ever making up that 8% will run head into the coming recession when both wages and workers are typically slashed. In fact, the latest job numbers say even workers drip down Cantillon inflation has ground to a halt as full-time work is now evaporating and gig work is picking up the slack. At this point, unless government radically scales back its economic manipulations, which will not happen, the lost real wages of these past few years, like those of the 1970s, will probably never be made up. 
These past few days, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been stumbling her way through Asia, causing trouble, leading off with a groveling series of bows to a lowly Chinese vice premier. As the New York Post notes, quote, he stood erect during the uncomfortable ordeal, backing away to give her more room to kowtow. Janet then went on to eat some hallucinogenic mushrooms at a state dinner. Not a joke. But the interesting part of Janet's trip economically came at her next destination, the G20 Finance Minister Summit in India. Now, the G20 gathers the 20 biggest countries in the world. Yes, even Russia, who has been very naughty. They usually dream up new ways to fleece and control their subservient livestock, or subservient voters. In the presser, Janet was asked what the G20 was up to this year. For once, she did not lie since she's very proud of fleecing voters. It's the whole point of the G20. This year, they are pushing a global tax cartel that would punish any country that dares to undertax its people, along with $200 billion in debt handouts to poor countries to rope them into the green agenda. Keep in mind, those billions used to be yours, paired with green manipulation and financing, so money is drained away from other loans. And then crackdowns on crypto, which threaten the oligopoly, and of course, bank reform, by which they mean international coordination to bail out coquette bankers who lost too much at the casino and want taxpayers to cover it. During the questions, Janet was asked about the state of the global economy. Now, maybe it was the mushrooms talking, but Janet bizarrely claimed that the, quote, single best way to help the global economy was give more weapons to Ukraine. Now, you might assume this is just politicians making sentences in the form, thing I want X will cause good thing Y. But Janet is supposed to be a neutral expert, an economist, not a politician. And speaking as an economist, the causation is challenging. After all, the world economy is currently teetering on the edge of worldwide recession, set off by obscene levels of government spending, leading to near double-digit inflation that elicited raging interest rate hikes that are now crashing banks and costing American taxpayers trillions in pre-bailouts. And the solution is obviously weapons for Ukraine. The truth is the world economy does not care who runs the Donbass. If anything, it's the aid to Ukraine, not the war itself, that causes problems. Since $100 billion in spending crowds out activity here at home, it hogs up money, workers, steel. As for what would help the global economy, easy, cut the government spending so rates can come back down while those government resources and workers are freed up to create valuable businesses and sustainable jobs instead of upping ammo production to blow things up in exotic countries. In fact, as long as we're dreamcasting here, G20 could actually fix the banks by making them full reserves so they don't crash in the first place. And instead of bribing third world countries into energy poverty, they could quit with the green mafia and let poor countries build out the cheap energy they need, things like coal, just like the rich countries did before them. None of this, of course, will happen. Instead, we'll get these endless parades of international cartels pushing more control, more surveillance, more fleecing us all for our own good. Aren't too many humans killing the earth? The other day, Kamala Harris, currently the vice president, gave a climate talk saying we must reduce human population to make the air clean enough to breathe, to which her audience of greens roared in approval. The White House later edited the transcript to say reduce pollution instead of population without addressing the fact the green cheers were very clearly for wiping out humanity. At the time, I remarked that government should not have a goal of culling humans, to which I got pushback that we have to do something 
about, quote, Earth's overtaxed resources. So what's the deal? Are Earth's resources strained by too many humans? In short, no, it's the opposite for two reasons, markets and innovation. To illustrate, in the 19th century, people were worried about running out of whale oil, which was used for lighting, because people were installing lights faster than whales were breeding. So what happened? Why weren't we plunged back into medieval darkness failed by our whales? And the answer is price. The very fact that there wasn't enough whale oil upped the price, which created the opportunity for innovators to figure out other ways to run lights like kerosene, which is actually better than whale oil and which brought the existence of the engine. We can, of course, imagine a world with rapidly shrinking population, in which case there'd be plenty of whale oil and we would never figure out how to make kerosene or, say, automobiles. In other words, the population made the innovation via the price mechanism. In short, if we are actually running out of something, the high price itself bribes entrepreneurs to figure out how to either replace it or to find more of it. There's been the pattern for thousands of years because it's how markets work. High price incentivizes to replace the thing or to find more of it. Indeed, every day, companies are trying to replace scarce resources with cheap ones. For example, replacing the gold and silver that used to go into telephones with cheap copper or steel. They do this not to save the earth, but because scarce things are expensive, which means lower profits. Meanwhile, others use the price to find more of the stuff. So if we take oil, we generally drill a couple of hundred feet down. But the earth is thousands of miles deep and full of oil. Some companies might go deeper or drill in places like the ocean floor, but both are too expensive, so they're waiting for a higher price. In other words, we know we're not running out of oil because we don't even bother drilling three quarters of the earth. So does that mean expensive oil forever? No, because the new technologies, when deployed at scale, actually bring prices even lower than before they existed. This is exactly what happened in oil, which is much cheaper today in real terms than it was 100 years ago, even though we used up a lot of oil and there's a lot more humans. Now, that's not to say everything is perfect because governments can and do interfere with innovation. For example, limiting fossil fuel efficiency R&D to rechannel the money to crony greens, where it's wasted. Still, the people themselves are not the ones causing the shortages. In fact, more people cause more innovation. It's our crony governments that are overtaxing the people, using resources as an excuse. America's megabanks are having a fantastic banking crisis, even as they feast on the corpses of community banks. Last week, J.P. Morgan, America's biggest bank, reported quarterly profits rose 67% on the year to $14.5 billion on just $41 billion in revenue. That's a striking net profit rate of 35%. And for perspective, monopolies like Google or Apple only manage 21 or 25. Meanwhile, Wells Fargo reported a 57% jump in earnings. Bank of America managed 19%, still good for $7.5 billion, and Citi tossed in another $2.9 billion. In all, America's four megabanks cranked out $30 billion in profits on the quarter. Now, this all might stick in the craw of regular Americans who have just paid potentially trillions in pre-bailouts to banks in the form of unlimited FDIC guarantees and the BTFP that lends against fictitious asset prices. Not to mention sweetheart deals on acquisitions. For example, J.P. Morgan got $50 billion in taxpayer money to gobble up First Republic, which has already delivered them $2.7 billion in pure profit, 
they keep that, along with hundreds of millions in ongoing profits on assets they got for pennies on the dollar. So it is very good to be a megabank. But it's a whole different world in community banks, which are still down 30% since the March crisis, and which the Wall Street Journal worries are due for a 23% drop in profits that could set off yet more depositor flight, hollowing out those smaller banks. So why are the mega banks printing money while the regionals barely hold on? The key is what the Fed's rate hikes are doing to them. For the majors, their depositors are staying put. In fact, they're gobbling up depositors fleeing community banks. That means they can keep paying almost nothing on deposits. JP Morgan at the moment is advertising 0.01% on checking accounts for the median American bank account that would come to roughly 53 cents in annual interest. But those same higher interest rates mean Morgan can turn around and lend that money for 8.25 percent, 825 times more. That is the prime rate for best borrowers, and it's up from 3.25 last year. So they give you 53 cents and then they turn around and lend that same money. Remember, that was your money. They lend that for $437.25. Good work if you can get it. The problem is community banks, alas, are not too big to fail, so they must actually pay depositors. The journal profiled one Midwest bank who has to pay six times more two depositors to keep them. As the CEO put it, quote, our raw material costs just went up 600%. Another Montana bank was paying seven times more than a year ago, but it still lost 7% of its deposits. Across the board, community banks are now paying roughly 100 times more than those pennies Morgan gets away with. So what is next? The number of banks in America has already fallen by half since the 2008 crisis, meaning the too-big-to-fail oligopoly is even bigger and a lot more politically protected. That concentration is likely to accelerate, leaving many communities without hometown banks, the ones who make local investments, replaced by a giant money vortex to New York, at which point the money is lent out to mega corporations or lent overseas, leaving quote, flyover country, effectively strip mined of capital. The other day, Bloomberg published a chart showing America's twin deficits, fiscal and trade, are hitting the highs of the 2008 crisis and are already much worse than the previous recession in 2001. First, what is a twin deficit? The twins are the budget deficit, government spending more than it taxes, and the current account deficit, which is exports and It also measures if we're a net debtor to the rest of the world. So capital flows. If you're running twin deficits, it means your government is getting deeper into debt by sucking resources out of the private sector, while your country as a whole is also getting deeper in debt to foreign countries. In short, government takes from the people who borrow the difference from China. The numbers are fairly big at this point. The twin deficits combine to roughly 15% of GDP per year. That's almost $3.5 trillion, which is incidentally about 50% higher than it was in 2008 in dollar terms. Now, those twin deficits have long been a major flag in developing market analysis, identifying countries that are on an unsustainable fiscal path, living beyond their means and inviting a crash. The problem is that beyond the compounding trillions in interest you have to pay, at some point foreigners have bought up so much of your land your companies, your debt, that they are less enthusiastic about buying more. After all, there are a lot of assets in the world and they only want so much 
much of ours. This pushes up your interest rates. You have to pay more to tempt foreigners to keep lending to you. And it threatens the dollar, which is now the dirty shirt in the pile nobody wants. This is why twin deficits are such a red flag for developing countries. The crash hits rates and it hits the currency, both of which crash the economy. Of course, the U.S. can keep this game going much longer than some random Malaysia since the dollar's reserve status creates a large appetite for foreigners to buy up U.S. assets. Large, but not unlimited. And this is why so much is riding on the dollar. I've done a number of recent videos on de-dollarization, why it could turn one of America's biggest strengths into a catastrophe for the American people. And in short, the reason is there are something like two to three times more dollars in existence than America needs. By the way, nobody actually knows. And those extra dollars are held by foreigners, meaning that if the twin deficits drive foreigners to lose their lust for dollar-denominated assets, or, by the way, if some other event like sanctions or a gold-backed BRICS accelerates the flight out of the dollar, then potentially tens of trillions of dollars come flooding home. After all, Americans are the only people in the world who are obligated to actually use the dollar. At that point, we go to the developing country record. Massive spike in interest rates, double digits were common in the 1997 Asian crisis, while the flood of dollars would crash its buying power. In the 1997 crisis, currencies dropped by between half and four-fifths. In short, Becoming a reserve currency is like climbing a cliff face with no rope. Only the alpha countries even try it. But once you are a reserve currency, you better not let go. At this point, America is swimming in debt. Indeed, we become reliant on that debt. It is cracking. And each time they patch it with yet more trillions of debt, they are kicking the can. But each kick makes it heavier and heavier. At some point, they will kick it and it will not budge. With the impending BRICS anti-dollar summit raising chatter about a possible gold-backed BRICS, how would it work? Economist Thorsten Pollet wrote an article at Mises laying out one scenario. In his scenario, BRICS countries would deposit their gold, their sovereign gold, in a BRICS bank, getting interest in return. Then that gold would be lent out as paper BRICS denominated in, say, a centigram of gold. This would put the BRICS in circulation. So the paper BRICS would circulate, the gold would be safe in the BRICS bank, backing it. Individuals could also, in theory, deposit gold, receiving interest, and that too could be lent into circulation. This is, by the way, identical to how the dollar used to work. So the gold was in the vault, the paper certificates, the dollars, were lent into existence. In that scenario, those paper bricks would then be used by American importers to buy toasters, and the Chinese exporters could either keep the paper in their sock drawer or in their own bank, or they could deposit them in the BRICS bank and also receive interest on their gold, or the gold that that paper represents. So that's the general sketch. Now, Thorsten lays out the likely consequences all in proportion to usage. One, a rise in the price of gold, obviously. Two, a drop in the value of fiat currencies, like the dollar, euro, or yen. And three, a giant sucking sound of gold flowing to the BRICS bank. Now, if this BRICS is widely used, that giant sucking sound could set off a runaway process as savers flee dollars for interest-bearing gold at BRICS. Now, what could go wrong? The big one is trust. Depositors, even countries, would have to trust that a BRICS bank will actually give 
them gold for their paper. The standard solution for trust is some sort of custodian separate from the BRICS governments who, alas, are not widely trusted. China is a control freak. Russia is desperate. Brazil has a long history of hyperinflation. And in fact, none of the BRICS countries particularly trust each other either. So BRICS countries might keep their physical gold in their own country, but simply paper deposit them to a BRICS bank set up in a neutral jurisdiction like Switzerland or Singapore. Still, this does not address individual trust. After all, if China or Russia decide to suspend gold conversion and stick you with the paper, Switzerland or Singapore can't do anything about it. So that would mean if they want individual deposits into this BRICS bank, they would need some non-government custodian, some neutral, trusted third party who makes decisions about redemptions. Now, this is possible. When Dubai decided to become an international business hub, they had to overcome fears about their judicial system. So they hired former British Supreme Court judges. Still, with BRICS redemption, the stakes are much higher. And it's hard to imagine China, for example, letting go of control, while Russia at the moment may well prioritize survival over redemption. So near-term trust may be impossible for individual deposits, and so a BRICS bank might just stick with the government gold and the government redemption. We will get more details as we get closer to the BRICS summit, but at the moment, such an intergovernment settling mechanism is probably the most we'll get. It's not a game changer for the dollar. It is an incremental change. And I think this mostly because I don't think China has the balls or the imagination. Everybody in the Chinese government is deathly afraid of making a mistake and being shipped off to Xinjiang. They are not famous for their innovation. Still, the gold-backed option, even if it doesn't happen this time around, is a fatal Achilles heel to the U.S. dollar, indeed to all of fiat. Sooner or later, somebody is going to exploit it with gold backing, at which point big things happen. And when that day comes, the bill finally comes due on the 100 trillion fiat Ponzi. What would it look like if we end the Fed? It would change a lot, ending war, shrinking governments, Wall Street, so on. But in this video, I'll just talk through some mechanics. And mechanically, it's very simple. The Fed is a corporation, and like any corporation, it can be liquidated, meaning you sell the assets, you cancel the debts, and you are done. Currently, the Fed lists about $8.9 trillion in assets and $8.4 trillion in debt, making it worth $500 billion. By the way, the Fed is actually insolvent on paper. It owes billions to Treasury and growing, but then it also underprices its gold 50-fold. And then again, the Fed also has hidden unrealized losses. Remember, it's not audited. And so those could bring it back to zero or negative. Still, taking the Fed's numbers at face value, those assets are made of $5 trillion in government debt, Two and a half trillion in mortgage-backed securities, seven hundred billion in loans and other assets, and then the gold set against eight point four trillion dollars, which are the Fed's debt. Of those dollars, two point three trillion belong to regular people, four hundred billion are owned by Treasury, and three point two trillion belong to commercial banks. So yes, Wall Street has more dollars than the other three hundred twenty-five million Americans. So winding up the Fed is simple: you sell off the assets for dollars, you cancel the dollars, and if anything's left, it goes to the people who were forced to sell gold to FDR in 1934. Of course, this instant liquidation is very disruptive, and private gold or Bitcoin in a single leap would be hard on a government. So you might want to go the gradual route and keep the dollar, but simply make it redeemable in the Fed's existing assets. So you bring $1,000 to the Fed, you get a $1,000 bond or mortgage-backed security in return. Of course, all those treasuries and mortgage bonds fluctuate, and so simpler yet is to declare that a dollar is redeemable in some fixed benchmark. 
say, one two-thousandth of an ounce of gold. Then, as people redeem, the Fed simply sells their bonds and securities for gold, and they hand the gold over. Note, people would only redeem if they expected inflation to continue. And inflation does not exist without a government manipulating interest rates and permanently bailing out banks as lender of last resort, which is why in the first 150 years of our republic before the Fed, there was zero total inflation. So even if the government found another way to inflate, say by treasury printing money or bailing out banks, that would simply mean people redeem their dollars for Fed assets the Fed assets would drain away. And when the smoke clears, the assets are transferred to the American people who now use gold as money. In other words, the problem contains the solution. Finally, a gold-backed dollar would, of course, mop the floor with bricks in China, indeed with every other currency in existence, meaning every country on Earth would be forced to either imitate or die. Whereas gold-backing the dollar substantially ends all unbacked fiat in the world. It is a tantalizing prospect, ending worldwide inflation, financial crisis, worldwide depression, and the wars that feed on fiat. But of course, they know this, so they will do everything possible to keep it. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox. And visit petersanange.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.